We just want to this morning, uh, also, just, uh, it's an honor, you know, it's one of our previous pastors here, one of the pastors who have really impacted people's lives here, at, in the Utenaic community, and, uh, and also the Utenaic, the UBC family, and he, he's going to be uh, ministering the word this morning and challenging us, and uh, Dave, won't you come up here, and we really want to thank the Lord for you, and thank you, Anne, for for making him into the man that he is today. You know, he just <laughs> oh, bless you. We want to thank you for being part of our, uh, for being part of the church. You will always be part of the church. The church will always remember you, and they, we, you know, we always speak fondly of you, and you know the impact that you and Anne have had here on our people's lives. And we pray today that you will, the Lord will use you. And that you will just, uh, you know, challenge us. Don't be, you know, just don't be afraid. Just challenge us. We need to be challenged. And uh, may we just be blessed this morning. Can I just pray for you as well? Father, we want to thank you for Dave. And thank you for himself and Anne and their ministry. Thank you for what you are doing in their lives, Lord. And thank you, Lord, even for their children and the way that you are using their children. Think of their son in particular, Lord, or, or in the States, that you are just using him in, in, in such a powerful way. And Lord, we thank you for that. And that's what it's all about, Lord Jesus, when we, 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 know, we just don't know what would happen to our kids, Lord. And it's only by grace. It's only your grace, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for, for, for their lives. Thank you for Dave and Anne. And we pray that you will bless them, Lord, and bless their ministry. And, and as Dave introduces us to what we need to hear this morning and also ministers the word, I pray, Lord, that he will experience your fresh touch upon him. He will be so aware of you. Lord, bless us and use him, Lord, as, as we, Lord Jesus, are challenged today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. There we go. Thank you, Pastor Allen, and um, also to Pastor Allen and Sister Pauline. It's just such a privilege to be able to come and minister in this fellowship of believers. Whenever we come back to you tonight, it feels like we're coming home. Um, and we also count it a privilege to be part of the many pastors that have served this congregation. But I think what stands out, and I think still stands out, particularly in the Baptist Union, this is a congregation that has ministered to many pastors. And we feel blessed um, to have had that opportunity, which some of our fellow pastors don't get to, to experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's also good to come back and uh, renew fellowship with those that we know and have been a big part of our lives. But it's also exciting to come back and see so many that we don't know, but we know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ because we're part of the same family and hopefully through our visits that we will get to know you as much as and we've got to know others and that you'll get to know us. I want to invite you to turn to uh, God's Word. And this morning I, I want to share with you from Second Timothy chapter 3 and into the first part of first 4. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 3 and, and, and first five verses of chapter 4 just so that you've got the, the context of, of this passage. And while you're turning to that, um, I think... A lot of you know my normal preaching style, um, which hasn't changed, um, but this morning I want to approach this text a little bit differently, and I want to approach it by giving us sort of three snapshots of particular times in history, and you'll see the, uh, by way of introduction, and you'll see how that then makes this, this text so relevant to us in this day and age that we are living, and, and some of the important truths that I think that we need to take heed of and apply to our own lives. But um, as we come to, to God's Word, let me just uh, read for us from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and from verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness 
but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captive of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds destroyed concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have been carefully following my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for corruption, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living thing, living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you must be watchful to all things, and your afflictions do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father God, as we come to your word, it is indeed my prayer, Lord, that you would take my thoughts and my words and make them yours, that you alone would be glorified in our midst, and Father, that by your spirit you would stir in our hearts that we might hear what you want to say to us, and that we might not just hear, but we might heed your voice and your word and apply it to our lives, that indeed we might glorify you with these lives that you've redeemed for yourself in the places that you've planted us and called us to serve you. So speak to us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a bit of a long passage that, and we know the context. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy to really encourage him in his ministry in the local church. And um, one of the things that has been happening in this local church is that the church has become very susceptible to some of the false teaching and the erroneous thought that has been going around of the day, and we'll get that into, into a moment. And you can almost imagine there's a bit of a, a pressure from society, from the community, from the church that's coming into, onto Timothy and saying, well, Timothy, is it really like this? Or, Timothy, we should be doing this. Or, Timothy, we should be doing that. And Paul's saying to Timothy, stay true to the course that God has set you on. Hold on to the, the truth and the doctrines that you learned right from the beginning, from those scriptures. And these are the things that you need to be used as you continue in a ministry of evangelism and in pastoral um, ministry in this church. One of the privileges we have, Anne and myself, of traveling around the world is to see a picture of God's church. And let me say to you that it's quite concerning, but it's also very encouraging. The concerning part is that more and more, those that stand and say, you know, we are the church of God, um, when you actually, have on, upon close examination, you find that more and more there's deception and there's a moving away on, from what is truth and what is found in God's word. And, and I don't want to generalize, but, but forgive me if I do, but largely if you want to divide the world as, as we talk in particularly evangelical missions terms, the, the, the Western world versus the majority world, um, which is like language we use. The Western world where the church has been established for many, many years. And in fact, 
where the church was sending out missions to other parts of the world, missionaries to the other world of the world, is almost like they've put a blindfold on and they've stopped reading their Bibles and they're sort of just going to this buffet of, you know, anything that goes and want to be trying to conform to the world around them rather than remaining distinct in their witness for Jesus Christ where God has planted them. And it's hugely concerning. I was amazed even in my role when we went through COVID um, with a lot of our, our staff and our fellow workers in the USA context, how the church went into a crisis of faith during COVID. And that, were, that was just like amazing to me. And we spent a lot of time from a partial point of view encouraging people to get back to the word of God, to say that in spite of what is happening in the world, we still have hope. We still have assurance. We still know who we believe in. And in fact, nowhere in scripture does it say it's going to be easy. Even right here, as Paul is encouraging Timothy, he reminds him, it's, you know, it's not just to stay, stay true to the doctrines, but endure through what? Persecution and affliction and difficulties and hard times. That, that's what we call to. The other side of the picture I see in the world today is the encouraging piece where, you, where you're seeing God mobilizing and encouraging the churches in all these places where there's been a witness of the gospel. And they're holding firmly to God's word and God's word alone to instruct them and to inform them and to disciple them. And in fact, we've seen more people being sent out from some of these what were perceived to be closed countries and countries that had no Christian presence. But God, because of being faithful, raised up a remnant for himself, sending people into some of these other countries. In fact, we just had someone in this last year... Um, sent from West Africa, from a country in West Africa, to Scotland of all places, to take the gospel to Scotland. Some of you, if you've been there, or we were there in 2018, I'll tell you what, that's become a godless society. Um, where you go and look at uh, where some of the reformation took place in, in Scotland um, and, and what's happening now. And so are we surprised that God raises up a missionary, someone that will go and serve him from West Africa to go back to Scotland to bring the gospel? And we see this happening all over the place. Anne and I had the privilege of last year of being in Switzerland. And the first snapshot that I want to give you in history um, is of three churches that we visited. And there's a picture of these three churches. Now some of you are younger, you might not even recognize it as a church because these things have been around um, for a couple hundred years. Um, in fact, uh, the church on the left is... Um, uh, is the main church in Lucerne. Uh, it's called St. Lierica. And actually, they say that the, that church originated around 735 AD. Uh, so it's been around. The Romans actually had a sort of a, a place there. It, it eventually burnt down. That building hasn't been there since 735, but the, the establishment of the work was there from that time. Um, that building came later in 1639 um, after it had been um, burnt down and demolished and they rebuilt it. Uh, and I'll come back to that church in a moment. So it's a Roman Catholic church. But the point is it, it has been in the heart of, of Switzerland. The other two churches are actually in Zurich. And in fact, they just across the bridge from one another. Um, Frauminster is on, on the one side of the river. Um, in Zurich, interesting, this church was also established around uh, 853, um, and one can go back and look at that, and Crossminster, which is on the other side, which is this one right on the right, uh, was uh, uh, started around uh, 1100 AD. So there's quite a legacy. Now, when you go inside of these churches, and this is the thing that really struck us, um, and I was just doing some studies about the Reformation again, so it was really interesting for us, particularly to be in Zurich. And some of you might have heard about a reformer by the name of Zwingli. Anybody heard of Zwingli? Ulrich Zwingli? Okay, I'm going to give you an education. Um, Pastor Allen, you're going to have to educate some people here about the Reformation. Um, Ulrich Zwingli was a pastor that actually came and pastored in the 16th century. Uh, sorry, just go back to the other slide. Uh, at Frauenmonster and Grossmonster. And what was significant about it, both those churches were actually essentially, um, in those days, in the Catholic tradition. And, and what was happening was that no one had their own Bible. All instruction was in Latin. 
and um, no one, the common, what was known as the common people, couldn't understand what was being preached and taught and all the rest of it. And what had crept into the churches was a lot of tradition, a lot of religious ceremony, there was a lot of superstition, there was a lot of fear, um, there was a lot of false teaching, a lot of um, all sorts of things that were happening that were, weren't found in the Bible and weren't about God. They were just about people. And um, what is more, the, 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 the pastors or the clergy of the day had become quite uh, uh, arrogant, full of pride. They were trying to protect their positions. Um, you had bishop, bishops and pastors running around. And the, whole, the reality is God's truth was being, uh, was being obscured because the word of God was not being expounded. So on the scene comes this pastor, a young pastor, Zwingli. And uh, all his mentors, he was influenced by a whole bunch of people. I won't bore you with all of that. But anyway, needless to say, he became at a very early age in his life convicted about the need to go to Scripture alone to find truth. Okay? And he believed in the sovereignty of God and Scripture alone. And he wanted to test everything that was happening in the church against, through the lens of Scripture. And so he became very committed not only to preaching only Scripture, but he became um, committed to teaching people to be able to uh, read and write so that they could read Scripture for themselves and basically evaluate everything that was happening in the church and say, let's only do the things that God would do. And so he arrives in Zurich at these two churches. He's called to come and, um, well, he was just appointed a pastor at these churches. And he rocks the boat because he comes and he looks at what's happening in the churches. And he says, none of what I see happening here is actually in the Bible. And so from the start, he starts saying, okay, I'm going to, he doesn't tell you, announce it. He just makes between him and God. And he says, he starts in the book of Matthew. And he starts systematically reading and preaching through the New Testament. And then he goes to the Old Testament. Why is this significant? Well, at that time of the Reformation, as God's word was being expounded, and as people started hearing God's word, people started looking to God alone and not to all the other things. And, and, and suddenly they, realized, they started being saved. And then they started looking at some of the activities. And um, they started responding to God's word. So if we go to the next picture, this is one of the dramatic things. And if you ever get a chance to go to Switzerland, this is something to look at. Now, this is the church in Lucerne that I told you about. This is inside the church at Lucerne. I don't know if you've ever been into some of these sort of cathedrals. It, it's quite overwhelming. And this is just a little piece. I mean, you've got these great big things full of gold and images. And there's so much mythology and... Um, superstition and everything wrapped up and then I mean if you walk in yeah there's incense burning on the side and then you can go and pray for the dead on that side and and it and it's just overwhelming but I mean the amount of stuff that's inside the, the these churches is, is unbelievable and you know what became important in around that reformation around the 16th century people were were worshiping the activities and all these images and all the ceremonies. And that's what they were getting caught up to. And they, were, and they were being very superstitious because the pastors and the leaders of the day were saying to them, if you don't follow these ceremonies and if you don't worship these images and if you don't pay towards the supporting all this stuff, you're not going to get to heaven. Which you know, here in UBC, that's not the gospel. The gospel is by grace. This church still exists. And they still function like this. And unfortunately, they don't understand the gospel. You go into Zurich, what happened is, if you go to the next slides, um, Fraumunster and, and Crossmunster, this is Fraumunster. This is what the church looks like after the Reformation. You notice what's missing? All those gold things, all those images, all the rest of it. You see what happened as the word of God was being taught and preached. The people started responding and saying, what on earth have we been setting up in our buildings? What are these ceremonies we're doing? What are these activities we're doing? And so, not out of obedience to Zwingli or to the pastors, but out of obedience to God and his word, they said, we need to remove this stuff. And it actually created a bit of a riot, because if you go read in that part of history, there was a thing where the congregation got up and they just actually took all these things outside of the building and got rid of them. If you go to Crossmonster, it's the similar. That's inside. The stained glass window came later. But there's nuts of this imagery. And what became central again was the pulpits for the preaching of God's word. 
Very interesting piece. When you, when you suddenly get there and you suddenly experience this and you think, um, because your tendency is to look, oh, especially if you're one of these Gen Z peoples, you walk in here and say, wow, another boring church. You know, where's all the pictures? And where's all the fun stuff on the walls? And where's all the IT and the sound system and all the rest of it? But these people at this time were saying, you know what? We don't want any distraction from worshiping the one true God. We don't want anything um, to take us away from understanding what the truth is. And the only things that need to be incorporated into our worship need to be those things that are found in God's word and how God wants us to be worshipped. Very interesting piece of history. And I encourage you to go and have a, have a look at that piece of history. But this is when we had the opportunity of being there, seeing this, the realization of what happened at that time and still being in existence today. Now, it's sad because in Zurich, and particularly in the canton of Zurich, um, they reckon that only about 4 to 5% of the community still go to a Protestant church of some form or other. Um, and the reality is probably even many of them are only religious. They're not evangelical in the sense that they've been born again and they've understood the gospel. And so in the heart of where the gospel came alive and the Reformation took place, particularly in Europe, and you saw these dramatic events, people have returned back and away from God and they've allowed other things to filter into their life. So that's the, the first snapshot. The second snapshot is go back to scripture into the Old Testament and go to Nehemiah and let me take you to Nehemiah chapter 8 and um, we'll get to our text in a moment and those are worrying if this is the introduction my goodness how long is he going to preach uh, well, well I think Pastor Alan told you to bring lunch so don't worry I'm setting up for the main point but if you go to Nehemiah and let me give you a bit of background to what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8, and maybe you want to read it for yourself this afternoon. But if you remember, if you go back in history, remember God's people were all sitting in captivity in Egypt, and then we have that whole account of God raising up Moses, um, and he brings his people out of Egypt, but then when they go into the wilderness, one of the significant things that happens is um, God instructs um, Moses to give his people commands, laws, statutes, principles, and precepts. And there are, there are a number of reasons why God gives this to Moses. The one is obviously that the people understand who God is. He wants to reveal to him who God is. And in fact, if you look at Genesis, so often we look at Genesis as just a narrative of creation and the narrative of humanity and all the rest of it. But the key point of the book of Genesis is about reve revealing Yahweh, God, as the God, Lord. As you have it in your, you'll see probably in your Bibles, Lord is in capital letters. That's the main point. And so what, what God is doing with Moses is he's saying these people, because they're living in amongst nations where they're serving all sorts of false gods and they're chasing after all these things, I want you to make sure that they know that I am the one true God. And so Moses is instructed to give them the law. Secondly, in what God was revealing to them is he wanted to highlight to the people just how sinful they are. And actually, in their own efforts, they can't save themselves. And, and they, they, they only can be saved by grace through uh, what we know through, through Jesus Christ by faith. But that's what, what God was revealing through everything that uh, instructs Moses to write down. But then he also wants to instruct um, his people on how they to live their lives that would enable them to live lives that are bringing glory to God but not just bringing glory to God, that, but their lives would be distinctive that the world would see Christ in them or God in them as being the only God that they're serving. And so these are some significant things. After Moses, we know that you go through a time of um, God sets up judges and prophets and then um, you fast forward a little bit more. You remember people got dissatisfied with that and then they want kings and so God allows them to have kings and there are three kings that are significant, Saul, David and Solomon. Um, and then there was a bit of a set to, and the kingdoms, which always used to be one kingdom, one kingdom of Israel, divided. And you remember there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, giving you a bit of biblical history here. Um, and then what happens is God's people continue to rebel, and the northern kingdom rebels so much, God warns them. Long story short, um, they basically, the northern kingdom uh, um, uh, was destroyed, never uh, went, ceased to exist. The southern kingdom continued, but God in his grace allows a group of that southern kingdom to be carried away into captivity, into a place called Babylon. 
And you remember they were there for about 70 years. And um, while they're in captivity, what do, they, what do they start doing? And you can see it in some of the Psalms where they, they start lamenting over the fact that they had walked away from God and they had stopped worshipping God and they had stopped um, treating God as the one only God. But now they're in captivity, what can they do? And so they look forward to the day that they'll come back. And you remember the prophets are telling them that they will come back. Nehemiah and Ezra pick up the story when the people start returning from that captivity. And the thing I want to highlight to you and want you to notice in this snapshot is this event that takes place and is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter, um, chapter 8. And what we have here, and if you look there from verse 1, all the peoples are gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of the men and women and all who could hear and understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Um, let me just pause there a moment. Ezra is quite a unique character in himself. If you go back to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, it, it gives us an indication of the kind of person he was. It says, Ezra had prepared in his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. This this priest was no ordinary priest. This was a priest a little bit like Zwingli. That all he wanted to know was God through God's word. And had committed his life to not just learning about God through his word, but then teaching it to all of Israel. So now you've got all these people gathered. Um, and Ezra, Ezra comes and he brings the word of God. And we're told then in verse 3, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midnight. Um, that's a mandate for long sermons. So, and before the men and the women and those who could understand and the elders of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him and then there's a whole list of people and then as you get down to verse 6 and as Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And a little bit further down in verse 7, it says, And, the, and the, the, the priests and them helped the people to understand the law and, um, and helped them in the understanding of the reading in verse 8. And so you have this incredible account. And what, what you then go into in, verse, in chapter 9 is you see the people repenting and turning back to God and in his word and covenanting with God that they would remain true to his word. Um, it's very interesting that it doesn't last very long <laughs> because you get a little bit past that and we find the people turning to false gods and false religions again. But what is significant in that point in history as the people turn to God and his word, again they experience a time of blessing, a time of revival. Um, but it's amazing how quickly they drew away. So that, that was the second snapshot um, in history. So let me bring you to the third snapshot in history. And that's in the text we're looking at today. We're going further. Um, we go, we're going to the New Testament now. And, um, but if you look at the little snapshot in, the, in, in Reformation history in the 16th century, and you look at what was happening at this time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, well, Timothy finds himself in a very similar situation. And, and what's the commonality here? The people had turned away from the one true God. They were being tempted to listen and to follow all sorts of things that they'd been, that they'd been hearing. They might not have been setting up statues or things like that, but they, were, they definitely were deviating from the truth. And um, as Paul comes to, to Timothy, and let me highlight a couple of things, Paul brings a charge to Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, you know, as you're a pastor at Ephesus um, and you face a lot of these challenges of these false teachings and, and the result of these false teachings is, is really undermining and distorting the truth, you need to stay the course. And you, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus and you need to keep your eyes on the word of God and on, and on the doctrine that you've understood so that you can address and continue to address and remain a distinctive in the area that God has called you. Um, it's interesting, the people had moved off from 
godly edification, if you'd like, and were finding themselves, as it's described, in disputes, having strayed off into entertaining what Paul refers to as fables and old wives' tales, genealogies and idle talk. Isn't that descriptive language? One of the things that I'm alarmed at, as, as we, as again, as we have the privilege of traveling around the world, is, moving in, is sometimes coming into churches that have been in existence for a long time. And in this current season that we find ourselves, we, we might be living, upholding the banner of the legacy of the past. In other words, you know, we have been uh, people of the book. You know, it's God alone, Scripture alone, and all the rest of it. But in conversation, we're entertaining idle nonsense. We, 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 we start um, wanting to, and, and, I, and I see this even in SIM as an organization, we, we are starting to feel the pressure of what does the world expect or what does the world want when they come together. You know, you, we talk about being seeker-friendly churches. That's a very dangerous thing. I hope I'm not standing on that, but it's a very dangerous thing. Because a seeker-friendly church says it's not about upholding truth, it's making sure that you are so comfortable that you will attend. And the reality is the only way to make someone so comfortable, especially a sinner, to attend um, is to ignore all truth. Don't tell them they're a sinner. Don't tell them they're heading for hell. Don't tell them they're heading for a judgment. But make sure their, their worship experience, the music is good. Make sure the, the preaching is engaging. Making sure their fellowship, you know, is, well, that's the place to be, you know, the place to hang out. If you go look at history and you go look at some of the places um, that Paul was encountering, Zwingli encountered, um, and, and even Ezra and Nehemiah as the people came back to Israel, you weren't the most popular people on the block to try and hold to a distinctive, a distinctive truth and to serve and worship one true God. And in the world today, particularly in the Western world, I, I watch the church in the Western world and, and I would put South Africa as part of that Western world church, is coming under more and more pressure to compromise on truth for the sake of maintaining their activity and not being fulfilling the Great Commission or what they're called to. Now, by, by God's grace, I'm making an assumption that you're not there yet. But don't rest on the loyal... The loyal the, laurels of the past and the heritage of the past because what I've noticed this stuff comes so subtly and creeps in and I'll, and I'll tell you a little bit where it creeps in and why it creeps in notice what Paul says to Timothy as he, as he outlines in putting things into context some of the things that they're up against he talks about false teachers teaching alternative doctrine and then he goes down, and, 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 and why are these people teaching false doctrine? What does it look like? Um, he, he says, people in the last days, and he's not talking initially about when Jesus will come. This is the last days, even when Paul, uh, Timothy is around. But he says, you're going to find that people are going to become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice in the text, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He goes on and says, Always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Resisting the truth. Not enduring sound doctrine. But according or to their own desires or their itching ears, what do they want to do? They want to accumulate or heap upon themselves teachers that will suit their passions or their objectives. Now you pause and think for a moment. You think about the world out there. Now you're going to sit there and say, that's not us. Praise the Lord and whatever. Don't get too self-righteous and, and <laughs> be careful. Because look at that list. Does any one of those lists talk about putting up an image or a statue or worshipping a false god? None of it does. And so when you look at some of those churches at the Reformation, you say, oh, we'll never do that. No, you probably won't. But becoming lovers of pleasure... Unpack that a little bit in the context of the church. You know, my style of music, what I prefer in my style of music, is that not a pleasure? Rather than evaluating music and worship that God wants to hear. What about my style of preaching? How many of you times um, dissect Pastor Allen at lunch? 
Yeah, some nervous giggles. I've been in pastoral ministry long enough. I mean, we all know it happens. Pastor Ellen knows it. We've got a support group for guys like us. Yeah, that we, we pray about this kind of stuff, you know. But what happens is, not to put us on the spot, but how often don't we, we don't listen to the heart of the message or what God is saying in his word, but we, we, we dissect the delivery. And what, has hap- what we do is we say, it's not to my liking. I would have preferred if he did this, or he, why, is he, why can't he preach like that person, or why can't he talk like this? So what are you actually pandering to? Your own pleasure and your own desire. You see, you just want someone to do it like you want to do it. Why don't you stand up yourself? Stand in the mirror. It won't be very informative, and it won't be very helpful to your spiritual growth. Have you noticed in the world today how there's, there's like this hidden agenda just to resist anything that is truth? It's always questioned. Look at social media. It, 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 it intrigues me how people follow some of the stuff on social media. And no one wants to go to the source of that information. No one wants to evaluate. All they want to make sure is that I'm on the right side of the most popular group that is, whether it is for or against. And sometimes we even cast our voice into that kind of, call it a cesspool of whatever. And all we're trying to do is annihilate anything that has a resemblance of truth. And God calls his church to be different. And this whole thing of having itching ears that will just accumulate what they want to hear. Um, you know, I, I know that um, I got into the habit and, and was in the habit a lot often when being in, in pastoral ministry that um, I know I started doing it here and I, and I did it certainly when we were at Tableview as well. We wouldn't announce when we were having a, a, a visiting or a guest preacher or when one of the elders was preaching. Because I'd watch the congregation would change. There were some of them that were, couldn't put up with my preaching, so I get that. So, I mean, they would kind of come in, listen, and then disappear, and that's fine. But then there was others that would say, oh, if Pastor Dave's not preaching, well, we're not going to come to church this week. See, it all becomes about our opinion. When you sit in some of those elders' meetings or those deacons' meetings or those church leaders' meetings and you discuss about some of the challenges of the time of remaining relevant to our times with the gospel... Don't put you on the foot, but I don't know what your meetings look like, but I've been in many of those down through the last 30 years of ministry to know that often those meetings um, sort of default to personal opinion and preference, which are often linked to tradition or my comfort zone. You see how subtly we can move away from the truth of God's word. And the day and age that we're living in, I think this is what's under threat. In fact, if you look at what... um, uh, Paul is saying to, to Timothy, um, where he's pointing him back to scripture and to doctrine, and uh, perhaps we go, go to the next slide. Um, you'd have all heard, you know, scripture alone, and we talk about the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, in other words, there's no error with it. We talk about the inspiration of scripture, in other words, it came from God, and we talk about the sufficiency of scripture. You familiar with these four things? Should be. It's important. You know what I've noticed in the world today? even in the evangelical church, you, you, say to, you say to someone, do you believe in the Bible? They'll tell you yes. But unpack it. What do you believe about the Bible and, and what authority does the Bible have in your life? So you, you, you ask them a question, you say, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? In other words, God's instructing us, giving us principles, giving us precepts. How many would believe that this is the authority, this is God's word? Oh, I'm worried now. Come on, you should be putting your hands up. Okay, you should be putting your hands up. How many believe that it's without error? Okay, a few more believing it's without error. Okay, that should help you with the first question. How many believe that it's totally inspired by God? Okay, we're getting there, we're warming up, we're going to be here for a long time. And how many believe that it's fully sufficient for faith and practice? He has a naughty question. How many are applying that last one? You've got to think about that. I believe that one of the things that we are seeing, that, that the most is threat about Scripture today is the sufficiency of Scripture. 
How does that get, how is that undermined? It's when we come and say, Scripture says this, but you know, times have changed. Have you heard that? Or Scripture says this, but this was only relevant for the Old Testament. We are now in New Testament times. Or what about this one? Yeah, you know, I love this. I, as you know, most of you know, I'm a musician, and I used to be in worship teams for a long time, so this is not aiming at worship teams. But I, I tell you something. How many in worship teams, when you start discussing styles of music and the lyrics of songs, and you get into the debate about hymns and choruses and psalms and modern music and all the rest of it? Been in that discussion? And the discussion defaults to what? Preference. Often the discussion is linked to age, generation, and your exposure to music, what you like. But what we often do in those discussions, we undermine the sufficiency of Scripture because we don't stop and say, what is the worship that is acceptable to God? What does He want to hear us singing? Does He want to hear us singing at all today? There's something. Just be silent before God. That makes us uncomfortable because that, what, what does that do? It rocks our tradition. It rocks what we've become comfortable with. One of the, here's an interesting fact about Zwingli. And people have misquoted him. So you guys on the worship, worship team, here's some, um, some fuel ammunition for you if you ever find yourself in this debate because I know certainly in Baptist circles we debate this. There are some people that go to the far right and say we shouldn't have singing and musical instruments or anything in the church, right? And they quote Zwingli because at Zwingli's time in the Reformation, one of the things that was thrown out, there wasn't an organ, there wasn't any musical instruments, but the singing was thrown out of the church. But the reason it was thrown out of the church, it was not glorifying or edifying to God. And they had gone into these mantras that actually made no sense. It was a little bit like the New Age. You know, you come in a hum and a ding, and, and well, what's the purpose of that? And, and Zwingli was impressing on the congregation, you need, to be, um, you, ne you need to be edified in your own understanding of how you're worshiping God. We're not worshiping God like this, and nowhere does it call us to worship God like this. Now, it, it's this is the interesting fact. Zwingli died fairly young. He was actually killed. That's another whole thing at about the age 58. And so some of the reforms that he was responsible for bringing the church hadn't come to full conclusion. And so that's where the story, his story stops. And they quote that. But what people don't often highlight is that Zwingli himself was a musician. He played actually seven instruments. And he often used to worship God in his own right. But at his particular time, music and instruments and the songs themselves were being worshipped and not God. And so for the benefit of the congregation, he took it out. Well, he didn't take it out. The people actually said, we don't want it. I actually think that if, if he had lived long enough and he had continued pastoring, and in fact, you look at the pastor that followed, they started reintroducing worship, and they started reintroducing worship, uh, um, music and, and so on, but it was all centered around God. And their desire was to make sure that whatever they were doing was in Scripture, because they, up, they upheld that sufficiency piece. We could go on. I think you're getting the point now. You go and look at every aspect of your, of your life and of your faith, and you look at some of the things that you hold to, the convictions you, you hold to. Are those convictions founded in Scripture alone and in your understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, or are you trying to support your comforts and your traditions by drawing out selected verses of Scripture and ignoring the whole counsel of God? Why are we finding in the world today this, as I said earlier, right at the beginning, the concerns that I see in the evangelical church, but also things that are exciting? The concerns are is that subtly these things are creeping in, and the things that are creeping in, these false doctrines, these fables, these myths and everything, are undermining that key piece about Scripture alone, that we're saying it's not sufficient. Pastor Allen knows that even in the Baptist Union, we've had these debates. And we as a Baptist Union, we all uphold Scripture alone. But when you break it down into debate and discussion, we have no problem with the first three. But we have a difference of opinion on the last one. See, the last one leads us into a dangerous area of...
well, I don't even need scripture. You know, God spoke to me. I had a feeling this morning. Okay? Substantiate your feeling. If it's not in scripture, what we're doing is denying the sufficiency of scripture. Food for thought. So where does that leave us? Well, when you think about these greatest threats, evaluate your own life. And you could just drop those, all those bullets down. But here's a question for yourself. Um, these are the threats, false teaching, culture, tradition. But what about you as a threat? to the sufficiency of Scripture. Your comfort, your thinking, your attitude, and even your emotion. It's probably one of the most alarming things I see in the world today, in the Christian church, that we, we allow comfort thinking, our thinking and our attitude and our emotion to drive our belief and our convictions rather than Scripture alone. The places in the world where the church is thriving is where God's people are acknowledging that God is God and they revere and respect Him as God. They uphold His Word as the Word of God. And beside being authoritative and without error and inspired, they're saying it's all sufficient. And that's what they allow to, to prescribe to them how they should be responding to God. So as we draw to a conclusion, let me ask you a question. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? This picture just represents some of the voices that are going in our ears in the world today. Social media being a big one. Politics, economics, internet, all sorts of voices pressing in, telling us what we should believe, telling us what should they think, the world thinks should be important, but all the time undermining the distinctives that God has called us to and God has revealed us to, revealed to us. And so if you look at your own life, and, and I've asked this question as we've been traveling around, it's amazing as you start to pause to think, and you might be even sitting here at the start and think, well, yeah, this doesn't really affect me. But then you start saying, okay, well, how much of my time is spent in social media versus how much time do I spend in God's Word? How much of my time is spent in debates about being politically correct or trying to engage the many senseless debates of the day, and how much time is spent proclaiming the truth of what is upheld in God's word? How much of your time is spent defending your own comforts, your own culture, and your own tradition, versus upholding what God has revealed for his believers that now that we are these new transformed beings, so the big question is, what is your response? Notice what Paul says to Timothy in this, in this passage. Three things he says to him. Verse 10, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, and the list goes on. But notice where he starts. Followed my doctrine and my manner of life. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've seen what's important in my life. You've seen what's important in this gospel message, in my doctrine. These are the things you should be holding on to. Verse 14, he says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. We're saying to Timothy, it's about truth, Timothy. What you find yourself, this church has grown, it's great, and now it's starting to be rocked by all these other things. 
Timothy, it's still the truth. You've got to hold on to the truth. In your context, in your environment, in your sphere of influence, in your area of responsibility, it's all about truth. And then you get into chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, Therefore I charge you, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing and at his time, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. That's the mandate that Paul's giving to Timothy. And I believe in the day and age that we find ourselves living, we need to be asking ourselves what is our response? in the climate, in the environment, in the world we're living in. It is such a subtle thing to be pulled and lured away by false teaching and false doctrine. If we are not testing everything and if we are not holding to the word of God and as, as verse 16 and 17 says of chapter 3, all scripture is given in inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we're not committed there, You'll look again, you'll blink your eyes, and something else would have infiltrated the church of God. And so perhaps as I come and I share God's word, and I encourage you, this is just to, to stir our minds and our thinking. Go back and reflect on God's word and, and ask God, what is he saying to you in your situation and in your context, both as an individual and as a church? And my encouragement to you as a church is hold on to the truth. Hold on to the legacy that God entrusted to you, his gospel. All those years back, I remember reading the, the, the history of this church, and you will know the history of this church. That small group of believers that were led by God to have a witness for him in this community. And God has seen fit to keep that witness alive for him. My encouragement to you is that you ensure that that witness stays around proclaiming the truth of God, not just entertaining the world. Anybody can build a church by entertaining the world, but it won't last. But in this day and age, the world needs to hear the truth of God's word, starting with the revelation that he is indeed God, that man's a sinner, man's in need of salvation, and God is the one that's the author of that plan of salvation. That wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that we now have a living hope and this assurance of what is to come because of what God has done for us. That's what the world needs to hear. And that needs to be seen and reflected in everything that we do, in every activity, in our worship, in our interaction, and as we fulfill the calling and the ministry that God has entrusted to us. So as I continue to pray for you, and Anne and I continue to pray for you as a congregation, encourage you to pray for us that together we might stay true to the course that God has entrusted to us to proclaim his truth to the world. Amen.